I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Good morning. Uh, we want to welcome everyone to our time of worship now. Uh, we're glad to have everybody here, both in the auditorium and online. If you're uh, joining us online, we want you to know you're welcome here. And happy Mother's Day to everybody. Um, a quick reminder for those of us who are in the auditorium, if you're over four and you're not up here 20 feet from everybody, please do keep your masks on while you're inside. Uh, that helps us stay open and it also helps keep everybody safe. So a reminder for that, also a reminder that we will be having children's worship this morning when Michael dismisses us. So Michael will cue the kids when it's time to go out for children's worship. This morning, as part of our worship, we're going to be focusing on a new series on the book of Ruth for the next few weeks. And um, I'm really excited about that. I'm looking forward to the songs we'll be singing and the scriptures we'll be reading and the message in the sermon on the book of Ruth. I've always thought that's a, there's some tricky stuff in Ruth theologically. And I know I'm going to learn a lot over the next three weeks, but I'm really excited because Chris has really got a way that it applies to me today with all the things that are going on in the world today. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. It's a remarkable story of tough times. Whew, we got a tough, nothing like what Ruth had. Um, but it's really filled with loyalty. It's filled with kindness. It's filled with love. And it's really filled with God's people coming back to him. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, one of the big themes that I saw when I read it this week was Redeemer, which is a very nice thought for us to think about as we worship this morning. Uh, 
And also, a phrase that gets used a lot in Ruth is, the Lord bless you. That's a very nice phrase. So let's focus on God who redeems us and who blesses us as we continue our worship this morning. held the oceans in his hands who has numbered every grain of sand kings and nations tremble at his voice all creation rises to rejoice who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can reach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold, I adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. Who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare, come let us adore Him. You will reign forever, you will reign forever, you can compare. Come, let us adore him. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. 
At this time, the kids ages two through the fourth grade are now dismissed for children's worship. <clears throat> oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Sanctuary for you. It was you, Lord, who sent the Savior, heart and soul, Lord, to every man. It is you, Lord, who knows my weakness. You refine me with your own hand. Lord, teach your children to stop their fighting. Start uniting all as one. Let's get together, loving forever. Sanctuary for you. Oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving. I'll be Sanctuary for you. Morning, church. Good morning. Oh. Hello, Chris. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> we. We are going to be reading from Ruth this morning, chapter 1, if you'd like to follow along. Verse 15, we're going to the end of this section through verse 18. Now I'm reading from the ESV. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. You will die, uh, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw this, she was determined to go with her. She said no more. Now I really want my mic on. Wow, I am really loud. We did a mic check like right before service too. I don't know what happened. Uh, I, I love that like the best laugh I've ever received wasn't during a sermon. It was because I said hello. Um, 
<laughs> so this morning we are we're going to be uh, looking at the book of Ruth. But before we begin our sermon this morning, I want to I want to ask you to be praying for two individuals. Uh, just before service, Dania passed off a note to me to let me know that Sue Boyd's sister Jackie. Uh, has been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, and so we want to pray for her this morning for her health and well-being. Um, also, this morning, uh, Jake Higginbotham uh, shared with me that he uh, he's received a diagnosis for a lump that was on his kidneys uh, or on his kidney, uh, and it is cancer. And so uh, he doesn't know if it's metastasized. Uh, he doesn't know too much about what the, the uh, treatment plan going forward is. Um, Jake is very optimistic about it, though. Uh, and so... Uh, first of all, make sure you find him after service today. He's, he's in the back in the foyer right now. Uh, visit with him a little bit, but also remember to be praying for him. And we're going to pray for uh, Jackie and for Jake this morning. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our bodies are frail, and we recognize that. We know that there are a lot of things that can go wrong inside them, around them, uh, outside forces that can cause them trouble, inside forces that can cause them trouble. And because we, we identify with our bodies so much, that's a distressing thing. Um, it, it is a, a big deal when we're sick. It's a, an issue for us emotionally, spiritually, physically. And God, we, uh, we don't want to minimize um, the concerns that we might have in regards to our physical well-being, our physical health. And so this morning, we want to pray for Jackie. Uh, we want to pray that... Uh, we want to pray that this case of COVID is minor, that it is, is uh, nothing in the end, that there is no uh, major issues that come out of this. We pray for her health and well-being. We pray for her to uh, come out the other side of this with, with minimal uh, frustration and difficulty. We pray for those that will be providing her care to have wisdom in doing so. And God, likewise for Jake, we pray that what, uh, what he's received as far as this news in regards to cancer on his kidney uh, might be, Father, we pray that it hasn't metastasized. We pray that the treatment going forward will be swift and effective. Uh, we pray, God, that those who are providing his care will have thoughtfulness in, in his long-term well-being in the treatment that they'll provide him. But God, more than those two things, we pray a, a blessing of peace on both of them. We pray that they would have the peace that passes, understanding the peace that comes from a relationship with you, the knowledge of the security that they can have in, in your son, in his love for them. And as their family, as their, their brothers and sisters, we pray that we can shower them with love and support and encouragement, that we can be a source of joy and blessing in a time that could be a, a time of concern, trepidation, and fear. Father, we pray that you use us to be uh, peace in their lives. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ruth is uh, it's a strange book. In all of Scripture, it's, it's kind of unique and singular. Um, we have a handful of books that just don't, as you read them, feel as though you are reading the Bible. Now, to be fair, because it's in the Bible, we have to step back and be able to say, this is, in fact, like reading the Bible, because God intended for us to read it right alongside these other pieces of Scripture. But it's, it's a story. And it's a story that doesn't make a lot of really big, bold theological claims in plain text. Instead, it walks through a single season in the life of two women, 
And it tells the story of how this, this, this duo end up receiving a tremendous blessing that neither of them could have possibly expected, but maybe they hoped for. It, it's sort of in the same vein as Esther, where there, there is the constant presence of God without huge outright moments where God opens up the heavens and reveals himself to the people in the story. In fact, if I were going to compare the book of Ruth to any book in the Old Testament, I'd actually compare it to the book of Job. Uh, it's a story about an individual who faces a great amount of trial in their life, who loses so much of what they they love and cherish, the blessings that God had in fact given to them, and the way that they deal with the grief that comes after that, and how God provides for them in their grief. This morning, uh, I want to start by looking at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and I think that it sets the stage tremendously well for our understanding of the book of Ruth. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. It begins by telling us when the story takes place. That's a good way to start. The, the book of Genesis tells us in the beginning. It gives us a setting and a, a context for understanding what comes after. Here in Ruth, it begins with in the days of the judges, right? When the judges ruled. It's no coincidence that in our canon, in the in this Old Testament, in the scriptures, the way that the books are arranged, Ruth falls right after the book of Judges. And when we open the book of Ruth, it, it should be with that constant reminder of the book that's just come before. It, it helps to set up what our expectations for behavior, for uh, society, for the, the ways in which people respond to one another might be. And as I was doing a, a recent read-through of Scripture, one of the things that popped up in, in this, this situation, this structure, this arrangement, that I'd never noticed before was the closing line of the book of Judges and how it ends up framing the book of Ruth. So I want to share this with you. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that it's essentially like the, the Wild West of Israel. You have these judges who ride into town to maybe you know, set the law straight, but even the judges are a little twisted and corrupt in some cases. Uh, in fact, I challenge you to read the book of Judges and find that there's really only one judge that the book doesn't have anything bad to say about, and that's Deborah. And I think that that's a really interesting uh, experiment to, to go through and see that each of the judges has this tremendous moment of fall. Uh, I, I had gone into the book expecting that Gideon would come out unscathed, and then I remembered that he essentially uh, gets the people addicted to worshiping a uh, golden ephod. Uh, he has 70 sons from who knows how many wives. Uh, he names his son uh, Abimelech, the, the son of the king, which kind of means that he thinks of himself as the king, uh, the ruler over Israel, and that gives Abimelech a big head, and he goes and tries to make himself the king. Even Gideon, a man who, generally speaking, upholds the will of God and does what's right, ends up having kind of a tragic story uh, in the end. It, it reminds me a little bit of David and his offspring, who end up having a lot of issues and trouble that stem from his uh, poor choices 
moments in his life. But the book of Judges ends by telling us that this is the reason why Israel is in such a mess. There's no king. No king, and people just do what's right in their own eyes. And so when we open the book of Ruth for the first time, and we see that there is this family of individuals here, these, these uh, a mother, a father, and their two sons, we might understand why they'd want to leave Israel. We might understand even that uh, God has maybe brought some kind of punishment on the Israelite people because this happens multiple times in the books of, book of Judges where the Israelite people face some sort of trial or tribulation and there's a famine in the land and so these individuals get up and they leave. They go somewhere else. They decide that this is not the place we're going to be. Of course, there's an expectation set here because they go to Moab. And Moab is not a friendly nation to the Israelite people. In fact, when, when Israel was going into uh, the promised land, there was, there was some animosity there, a, a lack of love between these two groups of people. But this family, they get up and they go to Moab. And so as we're reading this story, if we read it in the eyes of the, the individuals who would have read it for the first time, there's already some expectation here for what the story might be about. Second verse of the book says, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, I don't want to get too nitpicky about things here, but I think in order to understand the book of Ruth, we have to understand that there are a lot of inside jokes or inside statements being made in the book of Ruth. And so as we read through this, I want to draw out some of the things that are being mentioned here that we might miss because of language. So let's talk about these names for just a moment and their origins and where they come from. The first name that we encounter is Elimelech. And Elimelech's name means God is king. Eli being this, this uh, drawing from God himself. And then Melech, king, lord, ruler. If you remember, we just talked about uh, Abimelech, right? Uh, the son of the king. God is king, Elimelech. This should tell us that this is a righteous family. If the father's name literally proclaims that God is king, this family must be righteous. So we can affirm that if they've made the choice to leave for Moab, they probably did it for the right reasons. This is not a faithless group of people that have left this place. It goes on and it tells us, Naomi, my delight, is what her name means. Now, it, this is a personal name, and it's important for us to know that her name is my delight. You know, she experiences delight because later on she's going to change her name or at least tell people what they should call her instead. We know that she's a person that's full of joy in the beginning of the book. She's someone who experiences good things and, and is pleased generally with life and the way in which God has dealt with her up to this point. We continue on. We have Malin. Okay, and this is the moment where we start seeing some foreshadowing. Malin means sickness. Why in the world would anyone name their child sickness? This is, you know, this, this slow building through this verse here. Oh, God is king, my delight, and my son is sickness. It's a strange little development that we see, this very quick turn. And then we continue on, 
We have Chilean, whose name literally means to meet an end. It's not so nice, or it's a, it's a polite way of saying to die, to find your conclusion in this world. Their sons, sickness and death. And it moves from being a story about righteous people making a righteous choice to a tragedy in just a single, single verse. The other thing that we find is that the author is not afraid to throw in a little bit of humor here because he tells us that they're from, they, they are in fact Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Okay, so Ephria is actually south of Bethlehem. It's outside of Bethlehem, but they're from Bethlehem, but they're Ephrathites, and Ephratha means fruitful. In, in other words, like many children or having a lot of offspring or, or much seed. But we know from the very next verse that these Ephrathites are not like Ephratha at all. They're fruitless. In fact, Naomi is about to experience perhaps the most fruitless season in her life. Because as we read in three verse, or chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These, Mo, these Moabite wives, uh, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And neither of these daughter-in-laws have borne children. They are fruitless. Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And she's left with two daughter-in-laws who, according to the Levite law, are not actually supposed to come back to Israel. This is, this is a story that begins with a lot of sadness because it tells us that these are righteous people who do something probably for the right reasons. And what they reap from the situation is sorrow. What they find for themselves is trouble and distress. Maybe they were setting themselves up because they named their son sickness and death. I mean, that was probably not a good omen in the first place. But there's, there's certainly an issue here that we're supposed to recognize that, that just because these are righteous people doesn't mean that their life is going to be easy. Everything we know about them begins with a famine. And if that doesn't speak enough to the fact that God's righteous people can, in fact, suffer... I don't know what does. And so I want to read to you this morning, verses 6 through 18. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read it out loud. I didn't want to put it all up on the screen because it would be six slides, and I'd rather just read it straight from the text this morning. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So 
she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to his, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I was asked on Wednesday night, oh, you're preaching on Ruth. Is this for Mother's Day? And I had to confess, uh, I'm not that thoughtful. I didn't, I didn't think ahead of time, oh, this was going to be Mother's Day. So I want to begin, uh, for uh, not begin, in the middle of my sermon, recognize today is Mother's Day. And it would be wonderful if each and every one of us had the dedication to our mothers that Ruth has to her mother-in-law. That's, that's a statement that I think we could all say for sure. When we experience our mother having a difficult time to stand by her in her hardship, in her difficulty, in her frustration. That's a wonderful thing for us to see. And I think oftentimes we reserve the book of Ruth for Mother's Day because we want to say we should be as dedicated to our own mothers as Ruth was dedicated to her mother-in-law. That's a good message. That's a good thing for us to take away from the book of Ruth. But this morning I want to say that's not what I'm, I'm going to preach on. What I want to talk about is the expectation that is set at the beginning of the book when we're told that these two young men take Moabite wives. See, these Moabite wives, the moment that we read that they took Moabite wives, our feelings about this family are supposed to shift for just a second. The author is playing on the emotions of the Israelites who are reading this book for the first time. You see, this book was actually written closer to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah than it was to the time of the story itself. And we know that uh, because we know it's written looking backward in history, and we also know that it's addressing very specific instances within Israelite society where men who had married Moabite women or Ammonite women or women of any other nationality were urged strongly to put away their foreign wives. This was part of Nehemiah's great reform for the people. And I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching about Ezra and Nehemiah that not every reform they enacted on the people of Israel is outright said to be a good reform. 
Not everything that Ezra and Nehemiah did was ordained by God. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't act out of what they believed was righteous intentions. It, it does, doesn't mean that they were being unfaithful to God in their desire for an adherence to the book of Leviticus. But it does mean that maybe in their zeal, their zealotry for the law, they went a step too far. We could hold up the book of Ruth against the book of uh, Malachi, actually, and see that one of the things Malachi is deeply upset about is the rampant divorce in the people of Israel. God is so distressed over the cheapness of marriage between Israelite people and any of their wives that Malachi outright says, this is wrong. God is displeased with you in your pursuit of this, this ending of your marriages. The book of Ruth begins, as I said before, by placing us in Moab so that we know that the sons of Ruth, of Naomi rather, and Elimelech have married Moabite women so that as we read it, we say, boo, hiss, Moabite women. They must be the villains of the story. They must be the ones who are going to cause the main conflict, the real trouble of the story. And then we find within just a few verses that the most righteous character in the book, the one who is pursuing what is best for others above what is best for herself, is a young Moabite woman willing to leave her homeland in support of her mother-in-law who has been left destitute. A woman who is outside of the law, who is not bound by the law, who's not bound by the custom or traditions of the Israelite people, who probably doesn't even know what she's adopting as she moves into this foreign land. And it's as though the writer of the book of Ruth says, shame on you for your assumptions about this young woman. You saw the word Moabite and you were so ready to put her away, to judge her, to assume that the only thing that was good that could come out of Moab was the death of Moabites. Even in Moab, there are those who are righteous. The book of Ruth is such a strange book because the person that we find ourselves supporting so strongly throughout the book is the person that the original readers would have strongly resisted, would have pushed against, would have rejected completely. were it not for the small convenience of her involvement in a very important lineage. And the author waits until the very end of the book, which we've got another two weeks before we arrive at, to tell us what I think we all already know, is that out of this Moabite woman, this foreigner, this person that we begin with so much assumption and malice towards, is in the line of David. In a time when unrighteousness rules the land, when even the judges that preside over the people lead people into idolatry, seek 
worship for themselves rather than for God. It's a woman who comes from the outside that will ultimately bring about the king who brings the people back to God. I think as I was reading through Ruth the last several months, the thing that stood out to me most was that God was challenging me on my own assumptions about the ways in which he works, about who he chooses to work through, about the ways in which God would change and reform my own life, the words that he would use, the people that he would speak through, the story that he would adopt in order to change me. See, it's easy for us to read the book of Ruth and think that it's a nice story about the Redeemer, and that is important, and we're going to get there because, man, the story about the Redeemer is super significant to the book of Ruth. But as we begin this morning, as we look at this first chapter, as we discuss what it is that we find here, I want us to think very carefully about our assumptions. Because the entire book is predicated on the idea that what we think is going to happen is, in fact, not what's going to happen. And if this is, in fact, one of the newest books in the Old Testament that has in mind all of the prophecy concerning Jesus, if it is, in fact, a book that looks forward to a Redeemer, a Messiah for the people of Israel, and not a book that was written just after the time of the judges, maybe just after the birth of David, if in fact this book has the entire context of the Hebrew canon, this must in fact be a book that looks forward to God's people and the redemption of those who are unlikely to be redeemed outside of God's extreme providence. I want to close out this chapter this morning uh, with a, a couple of thoughts. So the two of them, this is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, that word stirred there, uh, I've read it a thousand times before, and I finally decided I was going to go look at it. I just thought that it meant that like they were in a tussle, like, oh, Naomi's come back. This is a big deal. We're, we're so glad to see Naomi. It has a completely negative connotation here. They're stirred. They're gossips. They're talking bad about her. They're talking behind her back. Is this Naomi? There's a little bit of this. What is she doing back here with a Moabite? What in the world happened in Moab for this family? This is not the Naomi we know. And Naomi, instead of really defending herself, instead of saying, hey, you don't know what I faced back there. Show me a little credit. She adopts the persona of someone who is, in fact, Dejected. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This name that she adopts for herself, Mara, it literally means bitterness. It is, it is her saying, I, I have no joy anymore. I am not a joyful person. Whatever you expected of me, I'm not, I'm not the woman you knew when I left. Don't call me Naomi like you know me, like you understand what's happened in my life. 
I am very bitter. The interesting thing about this book, the thing that stands out most to me, the thing that I, I come back to over and over and over again as I read through the book of Ruth is just how sorrowful the first chapter ends. Uh, I was talking with a friend that if, if you were to take the book of Ruth and break it into a play, this first chapter is the perfect example of a first act in a story where the whole, whole plot is set up. The, the main conflict is very clear. There's these two women who have no ability to provide for themselves, who are destitute, who have no offspring who will carry on their name, who cannot provide for them, who cannot feed them, who cannot work to provide an income or a living for them. Because Naomi has left the land and gone off to Moab, and now everyone is rabble-rousing about her and 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 gossiping about her choices that she's made. Maybe they're a little bitter because they left for 10 years in the middle of a famine. Where were you to help us all out? These two women who are essentially social pariahs, the only question we can ask about them is what, what hope do they have? And Naomi has essentially said she's hopeless. But good plays don't end on act one. And now there are some good one act plays that you know, have a, an encapsulation there. But this is a three act play. And so the story has another three chapters left to go. I think the middle two chapters make a fantastic second act because they tell us there is in fact activity in motion. There is in fact hope. And they leave us at the end of the, the third chapter asking the question, how is it gonna resolve? What is God going to do in the lives of these two women? And, and we have the benefit of having the whole book. We can go and read it immediately. We don't have to wait for what comes next. Instead, we can read forward and see the beauty of how God works in the lives of these two women. In a time where everyone in Israel does what's right in their own eyes, we have to ask, is there anyone who does what's right in the eyes of God? Is there anyone who sees with his vision? Anyone who is willing to do the righteous thing when everyone around them is doing the unrighteous thing? And I don't have verse 22 up there, but I want to read it out loud to you. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. The end of the first chapter, whether we know it or not, is a moment of hope. This harvest becomes the most essential aspect of the entire story. It is, it is the, the moment at which there is hope for Ruth and Naomi even to have food in their stomachs, let alone anything else. This, this chapter ends by telling us that the good news lies ahead because the harvest time is the opportunity for these two women and that if there is in fact a harvest, that means the fruitlessness of Ruth and Naomi cannot possibly remain fruitless. This morning, I wanna, I wanna leave you with two thoughts. The first is this. This week, you will have the opportunity to encounter people whose stories you think you know 
you, you think you understand where they're coming from, you think you understand why they've made the choices they've made, you think you understand why they are where they are. Maybe you've heard a particular word come up about them. Maybe a way that they've described themselves, a name that's been applied to them by others. Maybe a name they've adopted for themselves. And the danger is that that will be the only thing you know about that person. That your assumptions and your assumptions alone will dictate how you treat them, how you interact with them. Don't let that be the case. The book of Ruth stands here as an opportunity for us to learn as a corrective to our assumptions about other people. It is an opportunity for us to say, if even a Moabite woman could be righteous enough to give up of herself to follow her mother-in-law and support her and take care of her in her destitution, maybe there's hope for anyone. Maybe my assumptions need to be adjusted so that I might see other people not for the label that they wear, but for the person that they are. And the second thing is this, if you are like Naomi and you are experiencing destitution in your life, and the name that you've chosen for yourself is bitterness, if you have adopted that moniker and you are walking through life experiencing trouble and trial and strife, if you feel hurt, if you feel as though God has abandoned you, if you feel as though maybe God doesn't hear your cries, you've lost everything, and you're not entirely sure what God is doing in this season of your life, look around for Ruth. See, God, God has positioned Naomi to have an ever-present help in her time of need. Someone who is willing to walk with her the many miles through sorrow and loss and grief. And I want to encourage you to know this, that you have someone in your life, probably in this room right now, who is willing to do the same with you. And we don't do that because we are great and wonderful and magnanimous people all on our own. We do it because we have a Savior who does that with us. We have a Savior who has come alongside us in our bitterness and our loss and our sorrow and our grief and our trouble and our trial and walked alongside us and said, I will not leave you or forsake you. If you are experiencing sorrow today, if you have gone from being Naomi, a person full of joy and gladness, a person who is delighted about life, to a person who just doesn't know where your hope is coming from, I want you to know that the hope that we have as Christians allows us to walk alongside one another in the direction of hope. And I want to encourage you not to remain silent or quiet about the trouble that you're facing, but instead to ask for help. Ask someone to walk alongside you. Let us know what your trouble is so that we can do that. Don't wallow in your bitterness, express it. You see, sometimes we're afraid that if we express the trouble that we're facing, if we tell people, I am bitter about this situation in my life, that they will walk away from us. There's two 
daughters-in-law in this story. And, and truth be told, I don't think either of them are intended to be the bad guy in the story. I think that Orpah makes the right choice for her. I think that Ruth makes the right choice for her. Uh, Orpah is willing to walk for a period of time with her mother-in-law, and, and Naomi reasons with her and says, look, you don't know what you're signing up for. If you go back to Israel, it would probably be better for you to stay where you are right now. Now, there's something to be said about, like, where's your evangelistic spirit? You know, come and worship my God, not go and worship your gods. But... Both of these daughters know the trouble that Naomi is facing. And for a period of time, they'll both walk alongside her. If Naomi had not expressed her trouble and her trial and her strife to them, neither of them would have ever been prompted to walk with her where she had to go. Express your frustrations and your grief and your difficulty so that people can walk with you in those things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we are sometimes ashamed of our hurt. We sometimes really struggle just to be open and honest about the ways in which we feel we've been dealt a bad hand. And I don't think that as we read through the book of Ruth, we're supposed to see Naomi as a bitter complainer. I think we're supposed to see her as, as hurt. We're supposed to feel a kinship with her in, in loss and struggle and sorrow and recognize that, yes, sometimes people are dealt a bad hand in life. And if that is us, Father, we, we need to express it. Give us the words to tell others where we are hurting. And Father, as we hear our brothers and sisters express their hurt, help us not to stand in judgment of them, not to wag our fingers at them, to shame them, but instead, help us to give them those words of affirmation. Where you go, I will go. Help us to be people that come alongside rather than stand behind and speak badly of one another. And Father, help us to set aside our judgment of others based on the names that they might wear. Help us to set aside our expectations for people because of the places they may come from. Help us to set aside the, the ways in which we have preconceived ideas about others so that we might see the whole person, the story that you are telling in their lives, the, the ways in which you work even through the people that we would least expect. Because, Father, if we stand in judgment of others based on such small information, I think that speaks more to the hardness of our own hearts than it does to your ability to work in them. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his love for us, for his seeing us in our distress, seeing us in our time of need, and choosing to walk alongside us rather than abandon us. Help us to emulate that. Help us to take on that image. And it is through him that we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways in which we can walk alongside you or bless you, I want to let you know that I will be at the back of the auditorium. We have several others this morning that would be willing to sit and talk with you and hear what it is that you need. Uh, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, and uh, you can meet me in the back if you need to. Hi.
I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's, let me, let's restart that. <laughs> I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. Take thy cross and follow, follow me. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him, all the way. I'll go with him through the judgment. I'll go with him through the judgment. I'll go with him through the judgment. I'll go with him, with him all the way. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where He will give me grace and glory and go with me, with me all the way. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him all the way. Please be seated. Faithful love flowing down from the thorn-covered crown Makes me whole, saves my soul, washes whiter than snow Faithful love calms each fear, reaches down, dries each tear Hold my hand when I can, stand on my own Faithful love from above came to earth to show the Father's love. And I'll never be the 
in faithful love face to face, and Jesus is his name. Faithful love is a friend just when hope seems to end. Welcome face, sweet embrace, tender touch filled with grace. Faithful love, endless power, flame, spirits, fire, burning bright in the night, guiding my way. Faithful love from above came to earth to show the Father's love. And I'll never be the same, for I've seen faithful love face to face, and Jesus is his name. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, 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 we cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lamb, and we cry, Holy, 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 we cry, Holy, 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 we cry, Holy, 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 is the Lamb on a hill. the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the Till my 
my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. When I got Chris's, excuse me, when I got Chris's notice to, uh, uh, about what his lesson was gonna be about, about Ruth, I started thinking about Ruth and, and I realized that the two sisters, Ruth and her, and her sister, one of them did the expected and the other one did the unexpected. Her sister, when given the opportunity to go home to her family, to go home to her country, to go home to her culture where she knew people and the, probably understood the language better uh, and just life would be easier, chose to go home and be with her family, which not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's what she chose to do. But Ruth, because of her affection or feeling of responsibility or something, felt compelled to go with Naomi and to take care of her. Because like Naomi said, she didn't have much. She's going back to a country where people would not really like her all that much. She didn't have a fortune. It'll talk about her having some land that her relatives can claim, but she doesn't get any of that. She has no money, she has nothing, and Ruth goes with her to take care of her. She does the unexpected. And that made me stop and then remember what Jesus did. 
Jesus did the unexpected. I want to read from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, talking about Jesus, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was proclaimed to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Jesus did the unexpected. The Jews expected Jesus to sit on the throne of David and to restore Israel to a great nation, to drive out the Romans and and make everything like it was before, which it never really was, but they wanted an earth, we often say they wanted an earthly king and Jesus didn't live up to that expectation. The Greeks looked at Jesus, who claimed to be the son of God and did the one thing that their gods never did, was care about people. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, they might like one person or maybe favor an, another country or, or one other thing, but they were very capricious, and they did whatever they wanted, and oftentimes at the cost of humans. That's the gods that the Greeks expected. And so for them to see the Son of God, to die on the cross for all humanity, that was foolishness to them. It was the unexpected. How many times in your life have you chosen to do the unexpected or been put in a, in a position that was unexpected and somehow or other when it came to the end of it, it was the best thing you've ever done or the greatest thing you've ever done? I know it's happened to me time after time. When I didn't do what was expected of me, when I did what I thought was right, and it worked out for the best. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus sacrificed himself. He died on the cross, and God raised him from the dead so that we could have the hope of eternal life, that we could be with God forever. Now this morning, we're going to do what is expected. We expect every Sunday to come to gather together to remember Christ. Okay? That's the expected. But we need to remember that what Jesus did was the unexpected. Will you pray with me? Holy God and Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for allowing him to come and to die on the cross for us. That in his death we might have the hope of eternal life. Father, we're infinitely blessed to be your children and we thank you and praise you for that. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for allowing us to know him. In his name we pray. Amen.
I think it's interesting at the end of that chapter that that uh, Chris, the first chapter of Ruth, it said that they came home and it was the barley harvest. Now most of us, when we think of the bread, we realize and we think that it's made of wheat, which most matzah today, unleavened bread, is made from wheat. But the time of Jesus, wheat didn't grow very well in that part of the world. And there was never really enough wheat to make unleavened bread, even for Passover. They use barley. Barley grows much better in that part of the world than wheat does. And I think it's interesting at the end of that chapter that it says they came home to the barley harvest, the grain that is used in the unleavened bread. Again, I don't know whether it's a foreshadowing of eventually Jesus I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. And it made me realize that we have the bread, and now we have the cup, the cup that represents the blood of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for Jesus, for the blood that was shed, the blood that cleanses us, that washes us, and makes us whole, and gives us the ability to be in your presence. Father, bless us now as we partake of this cup. In his name we pray, amen. This is just a reminder that we need to remember that uh, just because we don't pass the plates anymore, that we still need to give. It's still a requirement, still a command that we lay by in store on the first day of the week. And so remember that and the ways are listed up here. This church does a lot of good, continues to do a lot of good, even in <clears throat> the current situation. So please remember to give. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall his praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. 
Higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. E broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty. For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. Oh, one more verse. Here we go. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled. By its transforming power, making him God's dear child. Purchasing peace and heaven for all eternity. And the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. Amen. You may be seated. I went away full. That's my favorite passage in Ruth, and I never knew that was in there, that uh, phrase. That's a great phrase. Uh, in 121, Naomi said, I went away full, and that's our hope for everyone this morning. It's you, you're going away full of the knowledge and the spirit of Jesus Christ uh, and uh, God's son. Now it does, Naomi did say, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And what that means is next week, I need to come back because... I will be empty by next week. 
So, uh, but I love that phrase, I went away fool. That's a great idea. Uh, we do have a few uh, announcements, I think. Announcements on the slides, yes. Uh, Vacation Bible School, a preview meeting, May 16th. Put that on your calendar so you won't forget it. That's important. Vacation Bible School, we're hoping, is still going to be a major, major mission of this church this summer. Next slide. That's it. Only one. Good. Uh, I do have one other announcement. that uh, The life group, the singing life group, will not meet today, I've been told, uh, that Chris and Michael do. So remember that for the following week. And that has been a real blessing for me uh, to come and sing praises to God at 2 o'clock on Sundays. But it won't meet today because of um, Mother's Day. So let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, we are so grateful that you brought us here. And sometimes we are empty. Uh, but we can go away full. Uh, we can pray to you and you will hear us. Um, Boy, we really do pray that the stories we think we know, the assumptions we have, we won't let get in the way of the truth. And we really do pray that if we are empty, we will look around for Ruth to help us. We will know that you're not done with us. And we will give you a chance to work in our lives. We will do what we need to do, but we will trust you and we will stay full of your knowledge and your grace. Thank you for what we learned this morning. Thank you for teaching us how you work, how you reform us, and how you're there for us. Uh, Lord, we do want to pray for uh, Jackie that uh, she'll get through this COVID well. Uh, we want to pray for Jake, and we're so grateful for Jake. He helps this congregation in so many ways behind the scenes. And we really do pray that things will go well for him. Lord, we are grateful that our children's worship has started back up, and we're thankful for the people who are working in that. I pray your blessing on that. Uh, we're making plans for Sunday school when it can and should return, and we pray your blessing on that. And we pray your blessing on all the ministries of this church. Uh, clothing ministry, the youth ministry, uh, education, benevolence, just a lot of ministry involved here. And uh, we pray that you'll bless it. Uh, Lord, we are especially grateful for Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, and for the blessings that we have in Jesus. Help us to learn to be more like him. It's in his name that we offer this prayer. Amen.